Welcome to Into Theology. And we just started this podcast after a very careful discussion of what we're about to read and really detailed a plan. And yes. I did not just hit record in the middle of a conversation <laughs> we were having, and all of us off balance. I'm Wyatt Graham. I'm joined with Ian Clary. We've had a few weeks of break. Uh, we've both been busy. Mainly it's Ian's fault. No, um, you had your conference. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, we're, we're, I had mine too. I went to ETS and it was fun. We both had a, we both had things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to attempt to finish Augustine's confessions today. Kind of, but not right. Cause we're going to have some people on to talk about. Yeah. It. We'll have at least one or two and you should respond to an email. That you haven't responded to for three weeks to get. Sorry, right. Gavin. Yeah. <laughs> Because, yeah, that would be really helpful to have done three weeks ago. But anyway. <laughs> um, I was at ETS. Yeah, you're at ETS. You can't respond to email, of course. Uh, anyway, so we're going to do book 13. Uh, I read this actually last week. Okay. So I might ask you to open by finding something as I'm talking over these oh, seconds to read. Oh, no, man. Like, let, let me just say, because uh, we haven't really okay. been able to discuss like the, the what we're going to say here. So. Yeah what i this is like what's hit me now right I, i've i've said all throughout this podcast uh on confessions that like man i feel like i'm reading this book again for the first time like yes. it's just it's just been so refreshing and wow. i'm seeing things in there seeing things about my own life that i hadn't seen before like it's it's just it's like it's reading me i'm not just reading it and then you get through the, there's the slog right where you've got books 10 11 and 12 where you're like Ooh, we're gonna do some like philosophical heavy lifting here and and then it's like, man, you get to the end in book 13 and I, it was like feeding my soul, man. Like I was just like, I, there were like, I'm going to, what I want to read is actually just section one, right at the very beginning yeah. here to read it. Cause it's so beautiful. And it, I, I actually was like, my heart was being like stirred as I was reading it. And it's like all the kind of philosophical heavy lifting that he's doing is really to get us, I think, to book 13. And, and I would almost even argue that all the narrative by autobiographical stuff that he's doing is to get us to book 13, to just talk about what all this really means when it comes to like how we really relate to God. Mm. And it's like the first, you know, nine books are just kind of like an illustration of it to get our mind thinking the right way. He's going to give us some deep philosophical stuff and then bang, he hits you with 13. So like, let me just say this to anybody who's listening. Mm. A lot of people will read confessions and only read the first nine books. And then they hit the last of it and they're like, eh, this is for the philosophers. Listen, slog through those difficult ones on time and all that creation stuff. Slog through it because when you get to book 13, it's going to just hit home. And it's just going to, I think it just elevates you to a new level. Um, it really felt contemplative. Like he keeps talking mm. about contemplation. This. It felt so contemplative on the very nature of God. Hmm. Anyway, so I, I even like I'm writing in my margins like, yes, and like, this is beautiful and and all this kind of stuff. So um, so I, I I failed to bring my Loeb classic. So I grabbed my my old my old trusty uh, Pine Coffin Penguin edition to close this out, which somehow seems appropriate to me as I'm kind of like nostalgic for my earlier readings of him. So anyway, so this is in the Pine Coffin, page 311. So it's the very opening of book 13. I call upon you, O God, my mercy, who made me and did not forget me when I forgot you. I call you to come into my soul, for by inspiring it to long for you, you prepare it to receive you. Now, as I call upon you, do not desert me, for you came to my aid even before I called upon you in all sorts of ways over and over again. 
When I was far from you, from you, you coaxed me to listen to your voice, to turn my back on you no more, and to call upon you for aid when all the time you were calling to me yourself. You blotted out all my evil deeds in order not to repay me with the punishment I deserve for the work on my hands, which, you, which had led me away from you. And even before I did them, you took into account all the good deeds by which I should deserve well of you in order to recompense for yourself for the work of your hands, which made me. For before I was, you were. I was nothing that you should give me being. And now I am. And this is because of, of your goodness you provided uh, for all that you have made me and all from which you have made me. You had no need of me, nor am I a creature good in such a way as to be helpful to you, my Lord, my God. It is not as though you could grow tired by working, and I could serve you by preventing your fatigue, nor would your power be any the less if my service were lacking. I cannot serve you as a peasant tills the land, for your works bear fruit even if I fail to serve you with my husbandry. I can only serve you and worship you so that good may come to me from you, and but for you no good could come to me, for I should not even exist to receive it. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. I mean, so I stumbled a bit because my mind started to think about it again. And I was like kind of losing myself in what I was saying, what was being said here. I mean, like he's he's in that summary. It's like he's just basically described like the the the, the whole meaning of his relationship to God that he's just going to kind of go through and expand upon, like why it is that God doesn't need anything. He's getting to get into all these immutability stuff. Um, well, how it is that he was brought into being. He's going to go right back and look at in this very kind of figural way. Um, the whole creation story from Genesis, the opening chapter of Genesis and, and, he, and the way, like the descriptions and how, you know, he's going to look at like what an angel is and what, what the, what the firmament is and looking at the heaven of heavens and all this kind of cool stuff. I mean, it just goes on and on and, uh, the spirit's role. I mean, the whole thing is just absolutely, absolutely outstanding. I even the next sentence is interesting from where you ended clearly. It is because of the fullness of your goodness yeah. that your creation has stood firm. I don't know. One of the, some of the earliest Christian writers have this idea that, in essence, God is good, and good gives. Therefore, God creates, and here it's He sustains. I think one of the most helpful things with Augustine and some of these earlier contemplative thinkers is that they have a view of God in a stable contemplative way of thinking about him, that when you're in a crisis or when you're second guessing yourself, you're not just going through the lexicon of Bible verses to find the ones that might help. Right. But in fact, you know the God whom the Bible testifies to. So you don't have to doubt, is God good? Is there a Bible verse to prove it? You just know that he's good. And always does good, which is actually a psalm quotation. So I kind of, well, <laughs> but you know what I mean. <laughs> but he's rife with the psalms all through these quotes too, right? He's in Genesis and he's in the psalms <laughs> and Paul. Yeah, I can't <laughs> remember the great. psalm offhand, but I think it's like Psalm one forty three. It says, the, lo "The Lord is good and He does good." Yeah, which is you know essence and act. Yeah, um, in that idiom. Yeah, I I read this um, because I read this last week. I'm I'm less fresh, but I I do remember being. Beautiful. And even I think the ending of this might be just useful. The ending is because well, I mean, you've talked about I was thinking this, right? Like you've talked about that ending right from the very beginning. Right. I think even in our was it our first episode where you actually read from the very conclusion, mm. uh, because it's what it's all driving us to. And, and like it's why he talks about contemplation so much, because we need contemplation in this life 
so that we will then know what it is to finally contemplate God in the end when we actually rest in him, right? Like, so he's saying his soul is restless until it finds its rest in thee in the very opening of the book. And then it drives us right to the very end where we actually enter into God's rest, which is the full contemplation of his, of his triune being, which is like, wow, like it's so good. And there's even a connection. Uh, this is at a lower layer of thought. Like, so Sabbath and rest begins in creation. Yeah. But it also ends yeah. in the eternal Sabbath rest of whatever the, etern the eternal God. So there's there's a sense in which creation itself is, there's something embedded in it, seven, the seventh day of rest, for example, that points you upward and forward. So forward in time and in time, and then upward to God. Yeah. Hebrews makes a big point of this as well. Sure. There is a, yeah. there is a rest that is still available for us. And that rest yeah. can only be a rest in God. And since God, by definition, is eternal... <laughs> Yeah. Then it's an eternal rest. So I just think at the very end for me, this will be um, book 13, chapter 36, and then yep. section 51 at the bottom. He, he brings up language like that uh, at the very end there. You bestowed them on us um, should rest in you in the Sabbath of eternal life. Then he goes on to say in 37, even then you will rest in us. Yeah. As now you are at work in us. So that the rest of yours will pervade us just as those works of yours pervade us now. By the way, just think about that for a second. Okay, so we rest in God because God rests in us. So rest is a double entendre. It's this idea that he's indwelling us. But why do you have rest? And the rest is because who's working in you? Right. It's God. It's not that there's no more work, but that the work is now rest because God rests in us to work in us. And then he continues, but you, Lord, are always at work. And always in repose. It's always working, always resting. You do not see in time, act in time, rest in time, but yet you create or seen in time and time itself and rest in time. Again, going back to what you said, there's there's this idea that because God's a stable, real person, yeah. being immutable, you can think about him without, you have all these Bible verses, but you can just know him, right? The Bible is meant to get us to know God. And I think we get confused. We think the Bible is to get us to know the Bible. Yeah. You got to know the Bible, but it's to know God. Right. And you can see him doing that here. Um, 38. And so we see those things that you have made, that they exist. But as for you, it is because you see them that they exist at all. It's amazing. Outwardly, we see that they exist. And inwardly, we see that they are good. That's another amazing statement. But you saw them made in the very place where you saw that they needed to be made. At one time, we had the impulse to do good after our heart conceived after our heart conceived by your Holy Spirit. In four times, we were impelled to do evil while we abandoned you. But you, O oh God, the one, the good, you never cease to act well. There are works we have done that are good by your gift, but they are not everlasting. After them, we hope to repose in your immeasurable hallowing, that's a cool uh -huh. phrase. I want an immeasurable Halloween. Hello in the H, if you're hearing it, H-A-L-L-O-W. Yeah, Hallow. Like, Hallow be your name. Yeah. So, to sanctify. You are the good. You need no good thing. You were always at rest since you yourself are your own rest. Now you know why he talked about time and immutability and all this sure. kind of stuff. Yeah. He's outside of time, therefore he's rest. He's not in it. He's, he's immutable, therefore he's always at repose. And yet... It's not um, what people accuse this kind of onto theology of God's abstract. No, no, no. It's both end. He's in creation. And it's his Somehow. divine blessings too. 
since you are yourself you're at your own rest and then the last bit and then we can then you can respond what human being can give another the power to understand this what angel can give it to another angel what angel can give it to a mortal we must ask it of you we must seek it from you we must knock at your door this this is how it will be received this is how it will be found this is how it will be opened just from revelation 3 i believe the, the language there but he's in essence just saying you know jay packard a book called knowing god yeah, <laughs> i could almost call this book knowing god you know yeah totally um mark jones in his book god is like he says this is the whole point of everything right it's just to know god that he is you know well jesus makes the same argument in john 13 this is eternal life that you may know the only god and jesus christ whom he sent <laughs> Like, and I think sometimes we miss that. So the contemplative stuff feels, um, you know, you're too interested in heaven. You can't do any earthly good, that kind of phraseology. And yet you're created to rest in God and God to rest in you. And that is the most fulfilling end of human flourishing. Since the end of human flourishing is beatitude. Yeah. So I, it's a pretty amazing book. Why don't you say some things? Well, he wants us to like, he's setting up all, like in the beginning parts of it, right? Like these, he's, he's asking the question, like, how do we know this? Right. So contemplation is so important um, that he doesn't, and he's not giving it just like as a kind of like intellectual knowledge or the intellect is actually primary here, but he, he really wants to just know like how, like, how can we know who this God is? How can we actually contemplate him? And so in the in the openings, right, he's he's talking about like what is matter, God creates everything, he gets into heaven of heaven stuff, does it through the word. And then he's talking about how in the opening of Genesis, right, there's the the spirit who's hovering over the chaos of the deep, uh, that's all darkness. And then how the spirit is like moving, he's gonna move over these waters, it's gonna bring all the kind of like order and form. Uh, to this chaotic formlessness and then he's going to argue that actually it's really not just the spirit but he's saying it's the trinity right and so you this is where all our theology that we study gets starts to kick in here because it's like oh actually be through the person of the spirit because of the unified operations of the three persons the, th the trinity is actually there doing this and unified saying, operations no uh -oh. one ever talks like that but he's that, he's that saying you know, like, Catholic idea i guess so it must be catholic well, it is Catholic. There you go. <laughs> Small C Catholic. Um, but he's saying here how like uh, all this comes into being through the person of this of, of, of the triune God himself. And and then it's the spirit that as the spirit is moving and doing this and giving uh, giving light to darkness. It's that same spirit now who's going to enlighten our eyes. Right. He's talking about in number eight that the, the angels fall, the man's soul falls. And he's using kind of like Platonist language, like, you know, the, 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 the soul, the soul falling, but not in the same way that Plato would. I think this is our fall into, into an actual darkness of, of sin here, too. Um, and he says, when spirits fall, their darkness is revealed. And then um, the whole idea here is the spirit is the one who's then going to do this enlightening uh, such that then we can really know these things. And um, in, in number nine, he says, did, did not this father and the son also move over the waters? If we were to think of this as movement in space, his body moves, we cannot say even the Holy Spirit moved in this sense. But if we think of it as divinity, changeless and supreme, moving over all that is mutable, 
right? Like the kind of like the ocean of being sort of language. When the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost moved over the waters, why then does Genesis here speak only of your Holy Spirit? Why is it only in this, his case that he's mentioned as if you were in a particular place, which of course is not a place at all? We are also told of him alone that he is your free gift. It is in your gift that we find our rest. So when we come to this knowledge, that's a, this, like this divine spirit wrought knowledge, it's there we get the rest. And then he says, it's in him that we enjoy you, which then the, the, the fruition of that in our lives is actually like an eternal divine joy. And uh, he's saying, you know, and this is the natural end for things, right? right Can I the, pause and just read one yeah, sentence? Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going on here. I can go on. No, no, I want you to go on, but Please. I want to read one sentence because in chapter nine, section 10, by your gift, we are enkindled and born yes. upward. So Inflate. fire, yeah, like naturally goes up, right? Yeah. God appears as fire frequently in scripture, the burning bush, the Mount yeah. Sinai. We begin to glow with fire and up we go. Yeah. This is a language of divinization, but it's not how that sounds. It means we're like God. We're, we go to God. We're that, yeah. that kind of idea. But he the natural sign of fire. Yeah. Sorry, what? Well, he's maintaining we're not God. We're not going to be 100 percent. Yeah. But our humanity. We actually get sanctification. Our you be, you're yeah. hallowed. You're, you become holy. But what's interesting about this is God reveals himself with natural signs of fire. So the burning bush, Mount Sinai sacrifice um you know fire that comes down all that kind of stuff yeah. you wonder well why fire well Deuteron moses explains somewhat i think fire means that you can see god without actually seeing his form in order to protect his invisibility but also i think the natural sign of fire is not just because god's invisible and immaterial but because he's always bearing upward and yeah. so therefore when we're inflamed in this way it's it's a metaphor for us climbing to where god is because he's up to heaven as well, that's, exa that's exactly what he's saying at the end of nine, right? Like there is that ascent, like that, that's, that, that's the whole idea. You know, he says, um, like he talks about weight and how it's fitting for a body to, you know, and here he just means some sort of object to, because of weight, it's going to move. Right. And that's just fitting. Cause that's what it does as it moves downward. And so what he's doing here though, he says that um, in my case, love is the weight by which I act right? So that's what's directing us is love. And he says, to whatever place I go, I am drawn to it by love. By your gift, the Holy Ghost, we are set aflame and born aloft, right? Like that flame imagery, like you're saying. And the fire within us carries us upward. Our hearts are set up on an upward journey. And he quotes Psalm 83 there. As we sing the song of ascents, and there he's referencing uh, there Psalm 19, uh, 119. Uh, it is your fire, your good fire, that sets us aflame and carries us upward, for our journey leads us upward to the peace of the heavenly Jerusalem. It was a welcome sound when I heard them saying, we will go into the Lord's house, Psalm 121. Now, these are his psalms, so they're, they're slightly <laughs> off of ours. But there, there, if our will is good, you will find room for us, so that we shall wish for nothing else but to remain in your house forever. Can I make a number of quick observations? Yep. The weight of love doesn't bear you down to the center of the earth, but Let's it bears see. you upward. Yeah. Because love inflames. Yeah. Makes you alive with fire. The songs of ascent are, I think it's 15 psalms in the psalms, yeah. all of which are, well, at least were historically understood. Going up the deep steps. Steps up to the temple mount. Yeah. The Bible itself, when it talks about the city of God, uh, ha understands it in two senses. The city on earth 
with all the physical representations and then the city of God in heaven, Jerusalem above with all the real realities. So, you know, this in Ezekiel, for example, you have the, the, the gold cherubim are over the, the ark, but Ezekiel sees the real cherubim and they yeah. leave because they're actually in there because that the signs signify something real. Right. It's sacramental. It's sacramental. And Paul knows this. And so does Hebrews. So Paul says in Galatians four, that there is a Jerusalem above and a Jerusalem below. Yeah. The Bible knows this because God sits in Mount Zion and his feet are on earth on Zion as well, for example. But Hebrews also knows this because it says that all the, uh, well, Abraham in particular, but the patriarchs were always looking for a city whose founder and builder was God. Right. And while they maybe were in the promised land, they were still looking for a better country. And you find out that, in fact, that better country, that better city is one that is unshakable and unmovable and full of fire. Yeah, amazing, amazing. That remember, because get remember, because Mount Sinai had fire at the beginning, the, the, the lightning, and everything, and that was a sign and symbol of because heaven came to earth. So the the heavenly Mount Zion there that we approach, we don't go up, but we approach, means that the Church of God, who made, in whom all the saints are made perfect, which would never happen apart from us, Hebrews says, you approach there, and at the resurrection you'll be there, but in the meantime, then you have the promise of the city in you. Yeah. hidden and not yet revealed but soon to be revealed because remember in revelation the two cities become one right. where the city of god becomes a city of man and so when augustine here mentions the peace of jerusalem that you ascend to there's a double entente it is Absolutely. yes there's that jerusalem below for sure but the the jerusalem above that is the church where god is in the heavenly places is that city that we're all learning and young yearning for. It's too bad. He never wrote a book about that though. Oh yeah. City of God. I mean, geez, that would be such a cool title. It would have been a cool, cool <laughs> title. And yeah, but it's interesting too. It's like, you see it, it's the incarnation. It's God's space and human space, right? It's, it's the divine nature and the human nature coming together in the one mm -hmm. person. He's even like kind of a, like he's saying here in, in a number 11, right? Where he's, he's not doing one of those, um, you know, that's a bad analogy, Patrick, kind of things here. But he's seeing <laughs> it's kind of like an echo, right, of of the Trinity in that in that divine way through the spirit in the human person as as who we are. Right. This is I think this is actually why we're actually allowed to be able to contemplate and to know these things and receive these these realities. He says there are three things all found in man. Uh, which I should like men to consider. They're far different from the Trinity, but I suggest them as a subject for mental what chapter? exercise. Oh, sorry, this is 11. On, number 11, on number 11. So he's saying this isn't an analogy even. He's just saying, let's just do this as a mental exercise, a thought experiment. He says, by which we can test ourselves and realize how great this difference is. He says the three things are existence, knowledge, and will. For I can say that I am, I know, and I will. I am a being which knows and wills, I know both that I am and that I will, and I will both to be and to know. In these three, being knowledge and will, there's one inseparable life, one, uh, one life, one mind, one essence. And therefore, although they are distinct from one another, the distinction does not separate them. This must be plain to anyone who has the ability to understand it. In fact, he need not look beyond himself. Let him examine himself closely, take stock, and tell me what he finds." You're like wow like so the, the coolest this, chapter like it, it, it like man <laughs> like you're just sitting there thinking oh i see it you know and uh and then he talks about like our willing and how it immutably knows and then relating it back relating it back to god and uh so i was reading um 
uh, I've been reading some helpful books. Um, one I know we're supposed to talk about after, but I, I'm going to have to go, so I won't be able to do it. But uh, right. the the the, <laughs> the Thomistic uh, Common <clears throat> Sense uh, book by uh, uh, a French uh, Catholic writer named uh, Reginald uh, Gergou Lagrange, and and how he kind of articulates in Thomas's thought, right, and and in the Christian tradition that would be here in Augustine too. And I think this is I think this is going to relate to this idea is that um, in being, and here we're talking about like God's being in himself as the triune God, uh, being is the proper object of the intellect. And, um, and so, you know, he goes through and he explains how like the proper object of sight is color. So, you know, that, that, that's, what's going to make it so that you can actually then ex 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 get out of yourself into the actual world uh, is through, through the object of color through in, through the sight. Uh, and there you go. There's the book. And then um, uh, the proper object of the of hearing or the ear is sound. And he says the proper object of the intellect or the mind is being. And and it's only because really we're made in God's image and we have a rational soul. Uh, and because of this, what he's just said here about this kind of threefoldness about ourselves with our own existence and our own willing and knowing that, that we can actually have this real engagement with God in a real contemplative level where it's like a true knowledge because he's asking over and over, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know? And it's not like at the end of a syllogism that we know these things, it's actually God, the spirit mediating these things to us. And he's even using the created universe, right? So even that idea is like, man, can you imagine like next time you sit around a campfire and you're looking at that flame going up in this weird way, it's mediating that truth of this ascent of the soul to God, where we find his rest in the new Jerusalem. And it's like, oh my goodness. Now all of a sudden, like the natural world, which remember, this is the, this is former Manichae Augustine saying this, that, that the natural world, the Manichae say is totally wrong. It's, it's evil. It's chaotic. He's like, no, 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 no. It was, but God brought order to it. And now it actually mediates the knowledge of God to us. And that's, the, and th this explains why we need like figural readings of scripture, because it actually helps us to see not just how to read scripture, but actually how to read nature itself so that we can understand ourselves in relation to God, man, this stuff blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. I just, I'm amazed that that's not more obvious. I go in two minutes. <laughs> okay. To make it ultra simple, Genesis one, God made moons, the moon, yeah. the sun and stars. Why? To be a sign. Right. Funny. That's what it is. Yeah. He, and, he talks about how the heavens are a yeah. book in this, right? Uh, where does he, he has something in here. Let me just find it real quick uh, where he talks about the stars. Uh, shoot, I'm not going to find it. He, 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 oh, yeah. Anyway. A very short amount of time to find it. Uh, <laughs> well, I would argue that we should stop here because I think this is a good stopping point. Then you can rush start on. It abruptly. We stop abruptly. And I will just hit stop here and say that was really fun to work through this. Well, we're going to do at least two podcasts yeah. with hopefully Gavin Ortland on God, uh, Augustine creation. And then our friend Matthew Hoskin as well. What was he doing again? I can't remember. He knows everything about the classical role. I'm sure it's just that stuff. I can't I remember what we said. Awesome. awesome Augustine was. Yeah, he's uh, he's awesome.